chapter fifteen of abraham lincoln a history volume seven this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. abraham lincoln a history volume seven by john hay and john george nicolay chapter fifteen fort wagner the fact that the rebellion had its first violent outbreak at fort sumter indicated that place as among the first objects of attack by the national arms but as we have seen two years elapsed before any serious attempt was made to retake the fort and when made in april eighteen sixty three it resulted in failure after dupont's attack the confederates enjoyed two months of undisturbed leisure for the construction and strengthening of their works though all this time the matter of a new essay at the reduction of sumter occupied more than its proper share of the attention of the government the forces in the department of the south were not sufficient to undertake a siege of charleston by land and the exigencies of the more important campaigns going forward in virginia tennessee and mississippi prevented their being reinforced it was resolved therefore to restrict operations to the harbor and the islands immediately adjoining and admiral john a dahlgren after the death of admiral foote who had been designated for the purpose and general q a gilmore were charged with the command of the military and naval forces engaged the one was the most eminent officer of ordnance in the service and the other though young was already not only a famous engineer but also distinguished for his intelligence and enterprise in the command of troops the president was sure of the zeal and devotion of both and of their cordial disposition to work together harmoniously for the best results they indulged in no illusions as to the probable extent of their success in the undertaking before them general gilmore gave his opinion in advance that fort sumter could be reached and reduced or its offensive power entirely destroyed by the land and naval forces then serving in the department of the south provided there was hearty and energetic cooperation between them and the naval officer in command was one who had confidence in the monitors but that with the small force available about eleven thousand men the army could not initiate any movement of importance inland which would involve their leaving their advantageous position on the sea islands flanked by marshes on one side and the navy on the other admiral dahlgren had similar views he was ready to cooperate at all times with the army in any measures deemed advisable but never regarded it as possible that the navy alone could reduce the circle of forts around the harbor and take permanent possession of charleston he assumed command on the sixth of july gilmore had already been on the ground some three weeks and had nearly completed his preparations for a descent upon morris island when dahlgren arrived the admiral without a moment's delay entered into the plans of the general and within forty-eight hours collected his scattered monitors and steamed away to the harbor of charleston 
morris island is a low strip of sandy beach which lies to the south of charleston and with sullivan's island to the north guards the entrance to the harbor the two stretching out to sea like the open jaws of an alligator they are each about three and a half miles long separated from the mainland on the north and from the high ground of james island on the south by miry and impracticable marshes stretching a distance of two or three miles their inner ends are a little less than four miles from the charleston wharves with fort sumter lying midway gilmore resolved to make his attack from folly island which lies on the coast directly south of morris which it greatly resembles in conformation and from which it is separated by lighthouse inlet it was occupied by a brigade under general israel vogdes who had fortified the southern end of it controlling the waters of stono harbor and the approaches of james island there was a heavy growth of underbrush at both ends of the island taking advantage of this vogdes under gilmore's direction constructed ten powerful batteries near its northern extremity completely masked from the enemy's view their purpose being to operate against the enemy's guns near the landing-place to protect the debarkation of the troops and to cover their retreat in case of necessity most of this work was done at night and all of it as silently as possible during the last days the rebels were busily engaged in wrecking a stranded blockade runner within pistol shot of these batteries and never discovered them alfred h terry's division of four thousand and george c strong's brigade of two thousand five hundred were quietly brought together on folly island and on the afternoon of the eighth of july the former force was sent up the stono to make a demonstration against james island while strong's brigade was ordered to descend upon morris island at daybreak of the ninth colonel t w higginson of the first south carolina volunteers colored was ordered at the same time to cut the railroad between charleston and savannah a duty in which general gilmore says he signally failed the others punctually performed the tasks assigned them terry's feint against stono was so imposing as to be taken for the real attack by beauregard who hastily gathered together a considerable force to resist him and paid little attention to the serious movement on the beach there were still however enough men left on morris all in fact who could be handled to advantage but they were taken by surprise attacked in front by strong's brigade who crossed the inlet at daybreak and on their left flank by dahlgren who swept the narrow island with his guns they were speedily driven out of all their batteries south of wagner and abandoned to gilmore three-fourths of the island with eleven pieces of heavy ordnance the next day he ordered strong's brigade to assault fort wagner an attempt which failed with slight loss on each side on the sixteenth terry was attacked by a superior force on james island and although he repulsed the enemy with the assistance of the gunboats which accompanied him he was recalled to folly island the purpose of his demonstration having been accomplished 
although general gillmore had as yet no adequate conception of the enormous strength of fort wagner the assault and repulse of the eleventh of july convinced him that it could not be carried off-hand he therefore determined on consultation with admiral dahlgren to establish counter-batteries against it hoping with the combined fire of these and the gunboats to dismount the guns of the work and so shake its defence as to carry it by a determined assault the preparations were made with great energy and by the morning of the eighteenth exactly one week after the first assault general gillmore was ready for the second it was an ill-advised and unfortunate enterprise doomed to disaster from the nature of the case with all his skill and coolness and his profound knowledge of engineering gillmore was still young and daring and naturally inclined to think less than they deserved of obstacles in front of him he admits in his report that he was not aware of the tremendous strength of the sandwork he was attacking his information in regard to it was contradictory and meagre its formidable armament its full and disciplined garrison its capacious bomb-proof which could shelter the entire force in complete safety were as yet unknown worse than all this the maps of the coast survey upon which our army and navy relied implicitly had been rendered obsolete as to morris island by the stealthy encroachments of the sea which had almost gnawed the sand spit in two at the point just south of the fort leaving only about a hundred feet of dry land instead of the three hundred indicated by the maps and even this narrow causeway was subject to the washing of the waves in spring tide and heavy weather along this path of death an attacking force must march exposed to the fire of a fort stretching all the way across the island from the sea shore to vincent's creek presenting a front of three times the development which could be given to the head of a column of approach the terrible ratio reaching as high as ten to one as the sandy isthmus narrowed under the walls of wagner the batteries opened fire upon fort wagner from land and sea about noon and in a short time its defenders were driven from the parapets to the bomb-proofs the fire of its guns appearing to be completely silenced the flag monitor lay only three hundred yards from the sea face of the work says dahlgren not a gun was fired from it not a head was visible to my glass as i stood with other officers outside watching for the first symptom of renewed resistance cart-loads of sand were hurled into the air by every broadside in the course of the afternoon the whole work seemed to be beaten out of shape late in the afternoon gillmore formed his storming party to move at twilight this time was chosen that the column might not be distinctly seen by the enemy's batteries on the opposite islands general strong's brigade took the lead followed by colonel h s putnam's in advance was the fifty fourth massachusetts colored led by colonel robert g shaw one of the bravest and gentlest soldiers whom the north had sent to the war as the head of the column debouched says general gillmore from the first parallel the guns in wagner gregg and sumter 
and also those on james and sullivan's islands opened upon it rapidly and simultaneously and when it approached so near the work that the fire from the navy and from our own mortars and the gun batteries on our extreme left had to be suspended for fear of hitting our own men then a compact and most destructive musketry fire was instantly poured upon the advancing column from the parapet by the garrison of the work which up to that moment had remained within the safe protection of the bomb-proof shelter and now emerged therefrom to meet the exigencies of the assault from a front ten times as large as the head of the assaulting column this storm of death rained upon the devoted troops night had closed suddenly in unrelieved even by the light of stars for the sky was black with thunder-clouds the coloured regiment in the advance led by the flower of massachusetts loyalty did all that could be asked of them they melted away rapidly in the darkness but still pushed forward dashing through the water of the ditch and climbing the parapet of the fort there their heroic young colonel fell shot dead among his foremost men and the decimated regiment streamed back to the rear carrying some confusion into the ranks of those following them strong's men rallied gallantly and supported by putnam's brigade they gained the southeast bastion and held it for several hours but ignorant of the interior arrangements of the work they could make no further progress and were being gradually killed at the enemy's leisure when about midnight they abandoned the hopeless contest and such of them as were able made their way back to their camps the loss had been extraordinarily severe besides colonel shaw general strong and colonels john l chatfield and putnam were killed or mortally wounded general truman seymour who had immediate charge of the assault was severely wounded and many other valuable officers were killed in general strong and colonel putnam the army lost two of its most promising and brilliant leaders equally eminent in character and attainments the death of colonel shaw was widely lamented not only because of his personal worth but because he had become in a certain sense the representative of the best strain of new england anti-slavery sentiment the confederates recognized this representative character by their treatment of his corpse replying to a request of his friends for his remains that they had buried him under a layer of his niggers general gilmore though powerfully affected by the waste and ruin of this unsuccessful assault began instantly to accomplish the work assigned him in another and a better way he had lost one thousand five hundred men in his gallant rush upon wagner and had inflicted comparatively no damage upon the enemy the heavy cannonade from land and sea had done nothing more than mar the symmetry of the thick walls of fine white quartz sand a few hours work by night could repair all the injuries inflicted by many tons of metal during the day 
the impregnable bomb-proof could shelter the full garrison one thousand men mounting the parapet at a given moment could hold an army of twenty times their number at bay advancing along the narrowing path of sand there was nothing to be done but to press the siege by gradual approaches and even this course was surrounded by most formidable difficulties the scanty isthmus twenty-five yards at its narrowest part and subject to frequent overflow by the tides was swept not only by the fire of wagner in front but by that of battery gregg on cummings point at the northern extremity of the island by numerous heavily armed batteries on james island and by the destructive plunging fire of fort sumter delivered over the heads of wagner and gregg the first preoccupation of general gillmore was the elimination of fort sumter from the contest even while his thinned battalions were retreating from their assault on the eighteenth of july he gave orders for the formation of a strong defensive line capable of resisting any possible sortie which was afterwards called the first parallel on the night of the twenty third he established his second parallel by the flying sap six hundred yards in advance of the first stretching his line diagonally across the island on a ridge of sand resting his left on vincent's creek which was guarded by a floating boom and extending his right by a barricade to low-water mark terminating in a strong crib-work on which was established a powerful and novel arrangement of guns known as the surf battery at every advance he planted breaching batteries against fort sumter this part of the work being under the charge of major t b brooks a volunteer officer one of the most notable instances of which there were so many of extraordinary military capacity suddenly developed in young men whose training had hitherto been exclusively in civil pursuits admiral dahlgren gave his earnest cooperation in this work one of the most important of the breaching batteries was armed and manned from the fleet under the command of captain foxhall parker under the incessant fire of the enemy's batteries from front and flank these operations went on not satisfied with occupying every foot of the sand spit gillmore resolved to establish a battery bearing both upon sumter and the city of charleston in the deep mire of the morass separating morris from james island this apparently impossible task was successfully carried out nothing was left to chance every step of the work was founded upon careful experiment and scientific induction on a bed of soft black mud sixteen feet deep in a swamp overgrown with reeds and grasses traversed by winding bayous and subject to daily overflow by the sea waves a battery was built and immediately christened by the soldiers the swamp angel we will give general gillmore's description of this unique structure the marsh battery consisted of a sand-bag parapet with a return or epaulement 
of the same material at each end the whole supported by a broad grillage composed of round timbers in two layers crossing each other at right angles and resting directly on the surface of the marsh in this grillage in rear of the parapet there was a rectangular opening through both layers of logs exactly of the proper size to receive the platform of the gun and surrounded by closely fitting sheathing piles these piles reached from the upper surface of the grillage entirely through the stratum of mud into the solid substratum of sand within this rectangular space thus closely confined laterally by the piles layers of marsh grass canvas and sand were placed directly on the mud to the aggregate depth of several inches the sand being on top on the sand rested a compact sub-platform of planks on these planks the gun platform was placed the appalment and the gun were therefore so far independent of each other that the subsidence or displacement of the one would not necessarily involve that of the other on the ninth of august major brooks established the third parallel with the flying sap in advance of over three hundred yards and at this time the fire from the semicircle of confederate forts and from the sharp shooters in wagner became so incessant and so galling that general gillmore concluded that for the success of his siege operations against wagner it would be necessary to breach fort sumter and put an end to the annoyance of its fire he was not without hope also that after he had demolished sumter he might invest the island so as to ensure the fall of wagner and gregg he was compelled to wait a few days on account of the inferior quality of his powder but having been generously supplied by the navy he began on the seventeenth of august in concert with admiral dahlgren a furious and sustained bombardment of fort sumter every battery had its work assigned it the distances from the batteries to the fort ranged from three thousand five hundred to four thousand three hundred yards for seven days the storm of metal cast over that expanse of beach and water rained upon the fort until on the twenty fourth gillmore was able to report to the general-in-chief its practical demolition the barbette fire of the work was entirely destroyed a few unserviceable pieces still remaining on their carriages were dismounted a week later the casemates of the channel fronts were more or less thoroughly searched by our fire and we had trustworthy information that but one serviceable gun remained in the work and that pointed up the harbour towards the city the fort was reduced to the condition of a mere infantry outpost while this demolition of sumter was going on the siege work against wagner which had been checked for a while was again pushed forward on the night of the twenty first the fourth parallel was opened and five days later a ridge in front of it was carried by a bayonet charge and a fifth parallel established within two hundred and forty yards of the fort nothing now intervened 
between the besiegers and besieged but a flat ridge of sand twenty-five yards wide washed over by the seas in high weather this was found to be thickly planted with torpedoes and captured confederates said the glacis of the fort was also full of them in the midst of these hidden perils the sappers worked on and a single night brought them to within one hundred yards of wagner here they were brought to a standstill the converging fire from wagner alone almost enveloped the head of our sap delivered as it was from a line subtending an angle of nearly ninety degrees while the flank fire from the james island batteries increased in power and accuracy every hour to push forward the sap in the narrow strip of shallow sifting sand by day was impossible while the brightness of the prevailing harvest moon rendered the operation almost as hazardous by night a feeling of doubt and discouragement began to prevail when gilmore resolved upon a final and vigorous movement which ended the siege he moved all his light mortars to the front and placed them in battery brought his sharpshooters forward trained his breaching batteries on the fort arranged powerful calcium lights to aid his own men and blind the eyes of the enemy and secured the ever ready cooperation of the navy in a final bombardment of the rebel work at daybreak on the fifth of september the whole armament opened fire and for forty-two hours the soldiers were regaled with a spectacle of unequalled magnificence the mortars threw their shells over the sappers heads into the fort thirteen of the monstrous parrots one hundred two hundred and three hundred pounders sent their howling missiles at the angle of the bomb-proofs the new ironsides under captain rowan cast the ricocheting shells from her eight-gun broadsides over the waters to climb the parapets and explode within the fort by night the union men worked with perfect security in the shadow while the calcium light showed them every inch of the enemy's works there was no withstanding such a fire as this the confederates fled to their bomb-proof gilmore's sappers pushed rapidly onward they were out of danger from the moment they had got so near to wagner that the james island batteries ceased to fire for fear of hitting their friends a feeling of exultation took possession of them the diggers off duty mounted their parapets and coolly surveyed the works of the enemy a few feet away which gave no sign of life on the night of the sixth the sappers pushed past the south face of the fort masking its guns and removed the pikes planted at the foot of the counter scarp of the sea front the way was now open and gilmore ordered an assault on the morning of the seventh but shortly after midnight the enemy left the fort and silently evacuated the island some seventy prisoners were caught in the darkness on the water eighteen pieces of heavy ordnance were found in wagner seven in battery gregg gilmore was surprised at the strength of the fort it exceeded all that spies or deserters had reported after the terrible bombardment it was virtually intact 
these operations were not carried on without a vigorous correspondence with general beauregard no one could entertain relations with that sprightly general either as enemy or as friend except at the cost of voluminous letter-writing on the fourth of july he considered it his duty to deliver an extended lecture to general gillmore in regard to the misdeeds of his predecessor he gave a graphic account of general hunter's administration his raids on the mainland his pillage of plantations and seizure of slaves he held up the noble example of napoleon who refused the aid of russian serfs against their government and demanded a reply from gillmore as to whether he proposed to continue the barbarian practices of which he complained general gillmore replied with judicious brevity that while he and his government would scrupulously endeavor to conduct the war upon principles established by usage among civilized nations he should expect from the commanding general opposed to him full compliance with the same rules in their unrestricted application to all the forces under his command it is hardly possible that general beauregard did not understand the meaning of this note but he answered on july twenty two pretending ignorance and calling for more specific charges a demand with which gillmore complied succinctly but definitely enough on the fifth of august saying that he considered the expressions in his former letter as pertinent and proper at the time they were written and that they had been more fully justified by subsequent events he then quoted the agreement entered into for parole and exchange of wounded prisoners and referred to the violation of this agreement by the confederates you declined he said to return the wounded officers and men belonging to my colored regiments and your subordinate in charge of the exchange asserted that that question had been left for after consideration he could only regard this action as a palpable breach of faith later in the month of august in the midst of the terrific cannonade upon sumter another interchange of warlike missives took place between the commanders the marsh battery the famous swamp angel whose construction has been already described having been completed on the twenty first of august general gillmore sent to the confederate general a letter demanding the evacuation of morris island and fort sumter and informing him that in case of refusal he should open fire four hours after delivery of the letter upon the city of charleston from batteries already established in range of the heart of the city this letter by inadvertence was sent unsigned and was at once returned and then signed and sent back after waiting fourteen hours instead of four the swamp angel opened fire throwing a few shots into the sleeping city by way of warning and exhortation the next morning general beauregard replied in words as furious if not so sonorous as the tones of the marsh battery he sermonized gillmore as to his duties under the rules of nations not barbarous he reminded him that wagner gregg and sumter were much nearer to him than charleston and seemed to think there was special depravity in firing on the city from a battery quite five miles distant 
an act indeed of inexcusable barbarity that the shots fired were the most destructive missiles ever used in war growing sarcastic he asked why he did not demand the surrender of all the forts and finally he solemnly warned his adversary that if he fired again on the city without giving a reasonable time to remove non-combatants he would employ stringent means of retaliation gilmore replied at once paying no attention to the excited rhetoric of beauregard simply calling his attention to the well-established principle that the commander of a place attacked but not invested having its avenues of escape open and practicable has no right to expect any notice of an intended bombardment other than that which is given by the threatening attitude of his adversary charleston had already had forty days notice of her danger the attack on her defences had been that long steadily in progress the object of that attack had been at no time doubtful if the life of a single non-combatant were exposed to peril by bombardment the responsibility rested with those who had failed to apprise them of their danger or to provide for their safety and who had refused to accept the terms upon which the bombardment might have been postponed general gilmore said it was his belief that most of the women and children had long been removed from the city on beauregard's assurance however that the city was still full of them he would suspend the fire upon it until eleven o'clock on the night of the twenty-third thus giving forty-eight hours for the removal of non-combatants from the time his first communication was received at the expiration of this respite the swamp angel again opened throwing her eight-inch shells over five miles of marsh and beach and bay into the heart of the frightened city the non-combatants poured in a continuous stream out of the town but little damage was done the famous battery built with such skill and care had but a brief history its great parrot gun burst at the thirty-sixth discharge and was never replaced though two sea-coast mortars were afterwards mounted in the battery to operate against james island on the night of the eighth of september an attempt was made by a detachment from the fleet to carry fort sumter by a coup de main this plan had occurred to general gillmore at the same time but the force he had detailed for that purpose was detained by low tide in the creek and did not get off until the sailors and marines had attacked and had been repulsed with severe loss in the darkness after this the army busied itself for several weeks in reconstructing the captured forts on morris island and turning their guns against the confederate works in the harbor on the twenty sixth of october the heavy rifle guns were opened once more against sumter and two monitors from the fleet joined in the bombardment which in the course of a few days cut down the southeast face of the work so as to expose the channel fronts to a reverse fire the debris soon formed a continuous and practicable ramp from the top of the breach to the water's edge fort sumter was now a ruin sheltering an infantry outpost but encircled by the other forts in the harbor which had been greatly strengthened during the summer and autumn 
it continued to be held by the confederates until sherman marched north from savannah in the spring of eighteen sixty five general gillmore had not troops enough to make a land attack upon charleston and admiral dahlgren did not think it possible with his seven battered monitors to move upon the formidable series of works which lined the harbor on every side he convened a council of his commanders of ironclads men of tried courage and intelligence who decided unanimously that forts moultrie and johnson could not be reduced by the navy without the cooperation of the troops and by a vote of six to four that the attempt to penetrate to charleston with the monasters would be attended with extreme risk without adequate results the bombardment of wagner and later the attack by the ironclads on moultrie had shown that the damage inflicted by the severest fire on such sand works was incommensurate with the great expense and risk the ironclads says dahlgren might steam in and make a promenade of the harbor suffering much damage and inflicting little then retire to remain in would only be a useless expenditure of valuable vessels which could not soon be replaced the only result therefore of the year's campaign was the completion of the blockade of charleston by the possession of morris island which gave a shorter line to the fleet and by the demolition of fort sumter which allowed more freedom of action to the squadron in the lower bay the mutual criticisms of the opposing commanders in this campaign are curious each thinks the other at fault general gillmore contends that fort wagner though formidable in construction was wrongly placed that after the primary error of abandoning cole's island which gave up folly and made possible the movement against morris the great mistake of the enemy was in not fortifying the southern end of the island and in placing fort wagner so near to sumter that he was compelled to witness the humiliating spectacle of the destruction of his principal work on an interior line over the heads of the defenders of an exterior one the special defence of wagner gilmore thinks was faulty in two particulars it was too passive not a single night sortie was made and second there was little use of curved fire though the two mortars they had seriously delayed the advance of the national sappers general beauregard on the other hand condemns gilmore's plan of campaign as a whole james island he says was the avenue of approach i dreaded the most to see selected it was in reality the entrance gate to the avenue which would have almost assuredly led into the heart of charleston the enemy preferred breaking in through the window and i certainly had no cause to regret his having done so but general gillmore insists that his force was too small to justify an attack by way of james island which was too wide for his small force to operate on and where he would have been met by superior numbers of the enemy on morris island however where the space was narrow his force was ample both parties there had all the troops there was room for the advantage was on the side which was superior in artillery afloat and ashore in engineering devices and in a steadily maintained initiative moreover he especially wished to demolish fort sumter and took the best means to that end
End of chapter 15